0: Hi, everyone. First, happy 2018, and thank you all for continuing to listen to the ASF Science Podcast. The goal is not to overwhelm you with stuff, but to keep you updated on autism science. And that includes scientific findings and results of scientific experiments that have impacts on families. Now, when you think of ASF, remember our middle name. Over the holidays, a report and then a detailed analysis of data within that report were published and called into question what the true prevalence of autism in the United States is. If you've been around long enough, you know that there's been several ways of counting people with autism in the U.S. Well, one is to just count the number of cases of autism using special ed records, but as many of you know, that's not entirely accurate. Another, which is used by the ADAM network, funded by the CDC, gave us the numbers of 1 in 150, which is now 1 in 68. This goes back to those educational records and other school records of a select few states and identifies individuals with autism. They go back, they look at the educational records, they may pull in medical records, they may pull in whatever they find, and they go through them by hand. Sometimes they find kids who aren't diagnosed but actually have autism. Then there's something called the National Health Interview Survey. This is basically a robocall that goes out to 35,000 households representing about 85,000 people. They ask tons and tons of questions. They ask about physical activity, smoking, health insurance, income, your sexual preference, if you can believe that. They also ask about kids in the household, of course, and any medical conditions they might have. The first question is whether or not their child had an intellectual disability and then whether they had a developmental delay. And then they have a list of things going down to sickle cell anemia. Well, in 2014, they changed the survey. So the first question was intellectual disability. The second question was specifically about autism, particularly had anyone told them their child had autism. Well, as you can imagine, just the switch in wording caused the prevalence numbers from 2011 to 2014 to double, landing at 1 in 45. Now, at the time, in 2014, this was much higher than the number of the ADAMS study, which was 1 in 68. So some people assumed that the number had flipped from 1 in 68 to 1 in 45. Now, again, that was not the case. These were two different methodologies, and they came up with two different numbers. So why am I telling you about this? The difference between these two studies highlights that the way autism is counted plays a big role in the numbers of people affected with autism, and as an unfortunate consequence, because both of these studies are CDC studies, it causes a lot of confusion. And because there was a new study released over the break using these NHIS numbers, it continues to cause confusion. So this podcast is less about what the true prevalence of autism is, although, of course, I have opinions, but what's going on with the trend, at least nationally, using these two methodologies. Over the break, a new report from the NHIS came out, which was further broken down by researchers of University of Iowa who focused on just the autism data. The report included an analysis of developmental delay, disabilities, and intellectual disabilities. The JAMA article focusing on autism looked at what this data report said, but it looked just at autism. So there's that, if there's any confusion. Both studies, because they used the same data set, showed that using NHIS data... The 1 in 45 number used had pretty much stayed the stable since 2014, so the numbers in 2016 were about what they were in 2014. Developmental delay went up since 2014, but intellectual disability and autism spectrum disorder went from about 1 in 45 for autism to 1 in 39. Some websites and blogs are going to tell you this is an increase, but not really. Statistically, they're the same, so don't listen to places like Dr. Sears. He makes a living based on you getting scared about vaccines and autism. What this study does continue to show is that Black and Hispanic kids are getting diagnosed much less often, so they have a lower prevalence. White boys have the highest prevalence of autism of any group. This is exactly what the Adam numbers say. So here they agree. Forget about the actual numbers. Look at the trends. There is a racial disparity in the diagnosis of autism. There need to be better services through who are not white and, frankly, not white and male. Also, while the numbers themselves are different, I want to mention two things. First, they show that the number is leveling out, so to speak. And two, there's a point of convergence. Remember, atom numbers at 168 are different based on state to state. New Jersey has the highest prevalence of autism at about one in 45, but others like South Carolina have a prevalence of one in 81. New Jersey has a high number, probably in part because the school systems offer multiple opportunities to be evaluated. They also have their own registry to facilitate tracking. Using ADAM, the New Jersey prevalence is one in 45, and using the NHIS survey, the number is one in 45. Are people in South Carolina, where the numbers are more like 1 in 81, being under-recognized? Well, maybe. Also, the 1 in 45 number converges with data from South Korea, who literally went from classroom to classroom, screening and then diagnosing kids in person in a particular school district, and found it to be about 1 in 45, actually 1 in 38. So is the real prevalence of autism 1 in 45? Listen, I wish I knew. I think that it's interesting that Adam found a 1 in 45 number in one state, but I would never base any assumptions on NHIS survey. Listen, it's fine and it's told us about all sorts of topics, especially about insurance and insurance use. But for autism, it has showed us that the way that you count kids with autism says a lot about how those numbers are determined. Some people have said that NHIS is more accurate because it captures 6 to 17-year-olds and ADAM looks just at 8-year-olds. NHIS uses a robocall and asks directly about autism. ADAM is much more of the gold standard, evaluating each child on their own specific behaviors individually based on parent, physician, and teacher report. We can agree to disagree here, and that's fine, as long as we agree that the numbers are different for a reason. Unfortunately, as I've mentioned earlier, all this talk about methodology has really masked that environmental factors could play a role, not just in any change from year to year, but in the actual diagnosis itself. Some groups use these numbers to show X, Y, and Z as causing increases. Yes, I think it's important to look at increases, but if we focus on increases, then we're also missing some sort of understanding about the root cause to begin with, like what caused autism, 10 years ago before X, Y, and Z started to increase. I know, I've gone on and on and on about prevalence already, and that's still confusing, and it may not provide us any answers, so I wanted to kind of sprinkle in some good news this week. Everyone always asks, can I reduce the probability of either having autism or autism symptoms in my child? Well, a few years ago, Rebecca Schmidt showed preliminary data that folic acid, when taken preconceptionally, changed the odds of having a child with autism in kids in California. In 2017, this finding was replicated in Sweden and other countries and now in Israel. And it hasn't just been limited to the preconceptional period, but in early trimesters of pregnancy, which is important. The effects of folic acid did make the top findings of 2017. And here's a plug. Please read it. I'm pretty confident to say that women should consider taking folic acid in pregnancy. The March of Dimes says it, obstetrical and gynecological associations say it. It isn't like I'm saying that eating gummy bears during pregnancy causes autism or that wheatgrass enemas will reduce the probability. This is something that women should be doing. It reduces birth defects, things like spina bifida. And another study, which I thought was really important, is the finding that folic acid during pregnancy reduces autism symptoms in children of mothers who take anti-epileptic medications. So there's been an ongoing link between drugs like sodium valproate called Depakote and autism. And this has been around for a couple of decades. It's not new, but it isn't as simple as, all right, so women who are on these anti-epileptic medications need to go off their drugs before they can become pregnant. Many of these women need these medications to control their seizures and sometimes bipolar depression and other conditions. It's been a real challenge to counsel women on what to do if they become pregnant. Now, taking folic acid prior to and during pregnancy didn't totally eliminate rates of autism in women taking anti-epileptic drugs. They didn't really even look at that. They looked at autism symptomatology using things like the Social Communication Questionnaire. So it isn't about, quote unquote, eliminating autism, rather than about reducing symptoms in children's whose mothers need a certain medication. This isn't a fix for women on anti-epileptic drugs, because the real issue here is the major birth defects link, like spina bifida. But it's at least a step, and it also sheds light on the mechanism of how these medications may be working. So women, take folic acid while you're pregnant. Talk to your doctor about how much take it as early as possible. But this is not something that other organizations are warning against. It's what other organizations are encouraging you to do. As always, the links to the articles I mentioned are included at the end of the podcast summary on asfpodcast.org. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.